From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the first Wharton Moneyball of 2022. This is Kate Maskeos with the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, coming to you via Zoom, recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we have been doing for a little while, and we've been coming to you on Zoom for the last almost two years now. Gives us a chance to be here, no matter where anybody is. We are going to roll into our our new tradition, our, our, our first quarter segment on COVID. There has been no shortage of things to talk about on COVID. Then we're going to have a couple of open topic segments. We'll end with an interview, Q4 football interview, Eric Eager, a longtime friend of the show. Fantastic discussion with him on the football front. Gentlemen, afternoon to you. Happy 22 to you. And I'm very interested, as always. It's been a couple of weeks now, so even more interested in hearing what is on your mind, what has caught your eye in the world of COVID-19. Well, I'm going to jump in here because there's a lot and uh, I'm going to reflect and then, and, then, and then comment on what's caught my eye. So about two months ago, when we first heard of Omicron, we actually went around the room. I remember talking about it with you guys. It was mostly confined to South Africa. We knew about it. I don't think the virus was confined. The Omicron variant was not confined to South Africa, but what we knew of it was coming from the doctors. And there was two things that we heard which we were, which were entirely anecdotal, which was that it is extremely contagious, but we were a little bit suspicious because vac- vaccine um, uh, uh, prevalence is not that high in South Africa. And we also heard that it was a lot less virulent. And of course, we were suspicious on that count as well. Now that we have the papers are in, the data is in, Omicron is everywhere. And both of those initial assessments were right on the nose. It's mm-hmm. unbelievably contagious. Yep. And that mm-hmm. is something that the lines in New York City have borne out nationally, um, the rates of which our friends and relatives have, have, have acquired COVID has just exponentiated uh, over the last couple of weeks. And, that, and then some new data, really good studies. Uh, they're, not, they're not randomized controlled studies by any measure, but they're good cohort designs. They're good. Um, national studies, both in the United States, England, Scotland, Israel, have shown that it is easily the most uh, less virulent version that we've seen so far in terms of hospitalizations. It doesn't seem to really uh, dig into the lungs. And that means even when you do get hospitalized, it doesn't seem to require ventilation. Adi, let me jump in with a question there. To what extent do you think that means people just don't need to worry about it as much? And I want to ask that question as neutrally as possible. And I want to ask it knowing that that is exactly the position of a lot of people. Of course, some people have felt this about COVID from the beginning. And I think we could say pretty clearly that that was a bad philosophy. But some of those folks feel even more comfortable about it saying, saying it now precisely because of the weakened virulence of the Omicron variant, which is the dominant variant now. So to what extent do you think it is something that we can worry about less because of the reduced virulence? Well, I think that you have to... I mean, And I mean this real quickly. I mean this as a as an individual policy, as opposed to like social individual. I mean, I'm going to be straight. You got to figure out who you are. Right. So um, and so if you're not vaccinated and you are not under 50, I mean, you're not over if you are under 50 or vice versa, if you're over 50, if you're obese or if you have diabetes, it's a problem and you should worry about it. Um, and, And of course, you should get vaccinated, which is the logical reaction to being in that group. If you are un, if you are vaccinated and you're severely obese with diabetes, and you're significantly old, 
it does look like it's a lot less virulent than it was. And if you're if you have the the full complement of, of vaccines, I mean, there is uh, the best data that I'm that I'm able to go on that actually breaks it down. It's a national health system. We've talked about it a lot. Would be Israel. Uh, uh, UK has a lot of data, but they don't they don't release it in in, in as as openly. And I'm I'm looking at the at the percentage of serious cases. They publish that, and they are down across the board among the among the vaccinated to what I would call essentially classically in many cases lower than flu and in other cases about the flu and therefore if you are for most people vaccinated relatively healthy even old you probably should just go about your lives yeah so i was going to build on that you know uh, what i've been telling friends over the last couple of weeks is what we have now is that and it's you know related to topics we talk about in sports all the time is should you look at the total number or should you look at the rate because you know because of the increased uh, you know, uh, virulence, not just the virulence, sorry, not the virulence, but the prevalence. way it, the prevalence, not just prevalence, but the spreading ability of Omicron, the number of people has gone way up. And so what's caught my eye is, Adi, you and I have talked about it for the last two years. There are certain ratios that always held, like the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations and this and that, but all of that's out the window now. And so the reason we're seeing, you know, we see on the news all the time, Record number of hospitalizations. Yeah, the number of people that get it goes up by a factor of five, but the actual severity for the people that get it goes down by a factor of 60 or 70 percent. N times a smaller P, but N's getting multiplied by five or six. P is getting cut by a third. N times P is going to go up. So that's what the part that has caught my eye the most is that the number of cases, and in fact, there's been many articles about this. The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera, said, in some sense, can we stop measuring cases anymore? Because first of all, those numbers aren't accurate because so many people are doing home tests. And secondly, they're not actually reflective of the severity of what we're seeing. So let's stop reporting the number, maybe even stop okay. reporting the number of cases. Okay. Can I just say, before we stop talking about it, can I just say one more thing about it? It is amazing how many cases there are right now. Amazing. I mean, it is un- unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I think we're millions, past a million, millions a day. They're literally a million millions. a day reported. Yep. And it has to be that many again, unreported. Of and course. one question I would ask is given the phenomenal case rate right now, isn't it surprising that we've seen so little hit on hospitals? And I, I say that knowing that lots of hospitals are crushed, but we would have anticipated a much bigger problem. I think yeah. And, and, and I mean, just to kind of and focus, even focus that question further on the death rate, which is what I've been watching the most. It's it, it, even though I, uh, you know, I, I believe Omicron is much, you know, kind of uh, a much, you know, less severe virus in terms of death outcome. You know, the fact that we've essentially had exponential growth in the number of cases, like if you look at the New York Times, it's like, you know, 400 percent, you know, 14 day change in the number of cases. (laughs) Like I I find it hard to believe that Omicron is that much of a percent reduced in terms of death outcomes, that the death rate is still. But but Shane, we have to wait. We have to wait. We have, we, what's had, the lag? Been, what's yes, the lag? There, I, I understand. I, I know it's the lag. And I guess maybe my question to you guys is, is the death rate going to rise? Is it mostly just about the lag or, but, but we've had that exponential growth right. for several weeks now. I'm going to make that prediction. I'm going to make kind of getting to the end of the usual lag period. We have a couple of things to say about it. I'm going to also respond to Eric's point about hospitalizations. First of all, our data in the United States and Eric Topol has been on our show, just went on, went to town on this is still crap. 
we have such crappy data because we don't know how to aggregate and break it down. But the key issue in hospitalizations is the difference between hospitalization with and hospitalization for. And hospitalization with COVID has gone up a lot, but it hasn't gone up hospitalization for. The second thing about hospitalization is while um, ER visits and hospitalizations have increased, and I mean for COVID, the final stage ventilation, serious trouble, that has not budged. Um, And then the third thing to say about, um, and which carries with it the observation, it just doesn't embed itself in the lungs the way the previous versions did. And the third one, and goes back to South Africa, they're done. Their death rates never, never rose. A minuscule amount. I mean, it didn't go up, but hardly noticeably. And so if you go back to the places that this began and look what happened over there, and and England has been, which has been in this a little bit longer than we have, they haven't seen any death rates go up. Israel has been in it less than we have, and they track it well. They haven't seen anything go up. So I'm predicting lots of hospitalizations, um, which is going to crowd things up and make things a a bit of a a mess. I mean, potentially in some possibles, a terrible mess, but I don't think we're going to see the deaths really creep up much despite the massive growth in case rates because it just isn't the killer that it was. Okay, or, a couple or, quick or you might see, Again, we, we, we'll have to make a distinction too in the day. You, you mentioned hospitalizations with COVID versus or, you know, yeah. for COVID. In our death rates, I, I, I hope hospitals are at least <laughs> somewhat tracking deaths due to COVID yes. versus deaths but, with but COVID. We know, but we know that they're much better at that. Right. Because death but rates are actually, they actually put on a death rate. Which is maybe part of the reason die. that death rates are not going up, whereas that's hospitalization right. rates are. But that said, that's an imperfect science anyway, and it's the excess deaths, which of course is an estimate, but the excess deaths has really been the most, not, in some ways it is the most reliable measure we have across countries. Adi, I just want to emphasize that you generalize beyond just South Africa, which is great, because on the one hand, it's a stunning result to say death rate didn't go up. But we don't know what differences exist in that country versus any other country we want to generalize to. And so you said also UK, Israel. We still don't know, but there's at least three anecdotes out there. And so it begins, begins to be compelling. Eric? I, I think we have pretty good evidence now that the probability of death given COVID right now is actually going down considerably. Just because the number of cases is going up so rapidly, people talk about the lag. Actually, I read an article today that was referring to an article in Science. Actually, Omicron symptoms come on more quickly, faster, not slower. And so I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that there's going to be a longer lag period here. And I also think, you know, I'm also reading a lot of articles that are saying, you know, this in some sense is the beginning of the end of the pandemic, not the endemic, but the pandemic in the sense of now we've talked about this for two years. You add the number of people that have been vaccinated. Now you have to and boosted. Now you have to add on. We just talked about at the beginning a couple minutes ago, millions, possibly a million, two million a day that are getting this in 30 to 50 days. The sum of those two numbers is going to have to be 85, 90, 90 plus percent of the population. And at that point, the R, the replicability coefficient is going to start to plummet. And that's where we're going to still see. And that's where Adi's comment is correct. It's about who you are. Will there be clusters of surges and deaths? Yes, but not in the broad way we were seeing before. All the data is leading in that direction. One quick comment on that, Eric. Of course, you can't just add these groups together because we're seeing lots of breakthroughs, and so there's some subset, right? So it's going to add up a little bit less high than we'd like. I do want to, before we go too far past this, I want to just pause here and just ask, 
what, when would you expect the deaths to spike? Let's just walk through it real quickly. If right now we're seeing a million plus reported and anticipate that that's probably some factor of that, two million or whatever, right now. And you could imagine coming through the holidays, coming through New Year's Eve, Christmas, New Year's Eve, that might be peak infection period. So let's just call Jan 2 or Jan 1, you know, peak infection period. And when then would we expect to see Des, you say it's a quicker lag. Historically, COVID-19 would say, yeah, maybe 14 days to death. Right. And okay. we're, so we want to accelerate that. So we're going to say, well, maybe 10 days. Or what so. most people that will say is, it, but we're still one stage away or two from maximum spread, even though January 1st may have been a, a catalytic event. It's going to be the next um, wave. It's going to be the next wave. Most okay. people are saying end of January February-ish, which is why, you know, not just University of Pennsylvania, many schools are saying, well, we're going to pause things for a while. I'm not as convinced that at the end of January, the number of deaths, not the death rate, the number of deaths and infection, all the articles I'm reading say it will be higher than it is today. And so the peak number of deaths from this wave might be four to six weeks out from now. But, but we should get some signal some signal even just out of the boom from Christmas and New Year's. These mil- we're hitting numbers we've not even conceived of over the right. last two years. So we should some some signal within, you know, Jan 10 or something, some idea of whether the death rate is going to go up. Well, you know, the city in, in this country that got hit first, this with Omicron was New York, as it was hit first initially. And it's starting to see a, a creeping of the death rate. Two weeks is generally the, the point. The people who die often go quick. Um, there's a lot of lingerers. And I mean, I don't want to sound very, very awful about this, but people who get sick and might linger for a month or even longer. Let's be clear, Adi, just, just to specify for our listeners, when you say the death rate, I don't think you're referring to the probability of death given you have COVID. You're no. talking about the marginal death rate in the population, that's which right. takes into account both N, the number right. of people Absolutely. that get it in P. That's I think right. that's really important that we distinguish between right. the two. So, yeah. so if, I mean, I think we, we should be able to see, get a good estimate here in about two weeks. Gen 10 okay. is about okay. the right thing. One of the things about, about, I want to make two comments about the spread. Number one, we are this vast country, right? Vast, vast country. So it's going to hit it's New York, and then it moves to New England and Philadelphia, and then it spreads, and now it's down in Florida, because there, and, the, and then it goes to the South, and then it makes way to the Midwest, et cetera. I don't know exactly the order, but we have this sort of wave, uh, not necessarily geographical, but in time. And so we're going to see not this enormous spike like in South Africa and down, we'll probably see the super spike and then a plateauing. While, while it sort of crosses the country. Um, so one of the things that we have to be careful of is that already in New York, it's going down. And you're going to see, they're going to feel like it's over in New York, while in the rest of the country as a whole, is going to feel like they're in the middle of it. So that's just an observation. And I've actually a lot of policy um, issues, particularly because what does a local college say do? Um, because you should look at what's happening locally, not necessarily what's happening nationally. But the thing, the other piece, which is really, really interesting about Omicron, and I'll give you the background numbers. When, when Pfizer and Moderna did their original tests, the actual the clinical trials that made this whole thing go. You're saying based on alpha, on alpha. On alpha. They found 95% infection protection, infection right. protection for, um, for, from the virus, from the vaccine. They had no clue, by the way, on the serious illness protection because there weren't enough in each category to make an estimate. Um, only later did we learn when we looked at, out in the wild in the non-experimental setting and when we learned that the virus vaccines weren't actually protecting infection at the 95% rate, it was more like the 80% rate, 
Then we learned happily that the vaccine seemed to have a tremendous effect at keeping serious illness down. When Delta rolled, rolled along, we estimated that the infection protection was around 50%, 60% some were saying, 40, some 70%, but a healthy dosage of protection, at least for infection. And that was ramped up with boosting. Bottom line with Omicron, the vaccines don't work. I mean, they work for serious illness, that's, but they do not prevent you from getting infected. How do, how do we know that? Ah, I mean, there's not been okay, a challenge so, experiment or anything like that. Like, so okay, so no, I mean, you, you could say that the vaccines do not prevent tra- <laughs> yes, Omicron, yes. Omicron escapes the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. You got, or you it's got just me. that most of us have our vaccines have worn off. Like, like right. you know, that's like right. somebody so you're, freshly you're, vaccinated right. does you're not have any right. protection from Omicron? <laughs> you're absolutely right. It's not a clinical trial. And you caught me and I'm a statistician and I admit I just acted like a newspaper man rather than a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for, hold on, let's first so, Adi, give us the statistical observation and then we'll come to Shane. Yeah, story. so we only have the observation. And what we have is the observation is that the rates per 100,000 unvaccinated are matching the rates of unvaccinated vaccinated per 100,000. And that is conditioning on age group in the countries that can do that. We can't do that here because we don't, we don't have that data. So in other words, we're just looking at counts per 100,000. We don't have any detail on when you got the shot and when you didn't get the shot, because that's that would have to happen in an experimental setting or with much better than we, data than we have. And then they, they, those differences, by the way, are nothing to sneeze about. Sometimes, we, you know, we're so good at reminding everyone that the difference between a clinical trial in a controlled study and just observational data. But sometimes we forget why we have to be so fuddy-duddy about that. And here's a great data set that I got from the CDC. If you look at the deaths from illnesses unrelated to COVID among the vaccinated compared to the death rate from diseases unrelated to COVID among the unvaccinated, this has nothing to do with COVID. They're about three times more likely to die in general, in other words, the unvaccinated oh. are just much less healthy. They much, may make much better, worse decisions about their lives. Or I don't know what you want to treat you at the cause, but it's credible how much, how, how more the, the vaccinated are such a different population than the unvaccinated in so many ways, other than the fact that one's vaccinated and one's not. Adi, that's and, a fascinating and, observation. Is that is that that's your observation from these data, or is that uh, out there? No, it's on the CDC webpage. Actually, I'll tell you who, who pointed it to me. It was Alan Salzberg, who's uh, who's been writing extensively on Facebook and on Twitter about it. And he's teaching for us. He's a Wharton grad in our stat department, and he's been he's been on. Yeah, I've interviewed him. He found it. It's on the CDC website. It's not hidden. It's right there, and it's, it's no analysis is needed. It's broken down by ages, and, and that's and that's that's consistent. That's like stratified for age. That effect stratified for age, and it's all non-COVID death. And that's well, I just want to bring up, Adi, something consistent with what you're saying. This is just a study that I've just brought up on the screen that you guys can all see. Mm-hmm. Um, this is protection against Omicron, and it has after one dose, two dose, three doses. Just to give you a sense, this is against, and the, what's being measured here is reduced risk of symptomatic COVID relative to unvaccinated people. So just to give you an example, two doses after 25 weeks your reduction in risk is 2%, just to show you. So this is what, no, that's essentially yeah. zero. Now, three doses booster, and this is consistent with other data I've seen. Now you're back up to about two thirds. Now this isn't hospitalization and death. This is just symptomatic, but you are right. There's dramatically reduced effectiveness. Okay, so first of all, I'd like to know where this comes from and how, how they know this. The second thing is, is that when I say- This is based infection. on Eric Topol, as a matter of fact. Yeah. This is from Eric Topol, 
and from the Scripps Research Translational Institute. This was ba- this is Eric Topol's data, right? So I'm curious, like, what are the populations so where a, where was it collected so from, and that kind of issue? But we can dig into that. So the reason why, so one of the things this is, looks a little bit different than what I was reporting, because this is symptomatic. So I'm just looking at inf- fair enough infection. infection itself. I agree, it's slightly itself, different so, than so what that's you the said. other thing is. And uh, what 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 I found also in the this is is that the Omicron. It's very hard to to split this up because Omicron is newer to the United States than in, than in other countries, and so Delta, the vaccines are a bit more protective, not great, but a bit more protective than it is against. Although America. I saw a shocking number just today that ninety five point four percent of the cases that are being reported now in the United States are Omicron. Omicron, right? That's not so shocking. That's about what I would expect it, right? That's uh, a big <laughs> number for a short time. That's all. But that's good. I mean, because it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, good. honestly, it's at this good. point, why aren't we cheering for Omicron, right? At least relative to I mean, the other COVID variants. I have a qu- question for y'all coming off of those data because they, they were they were divided between you know r- right as you get right after you get two weeks after you get the shot versus six months after you get the shot, and of course that was the recommendation. As soon as you've cleared six months, you should get your booster. Does that mean we're going to be up for a fourth shot once we're out another six months? Do you think that's, is that about to happen? Because we're going to roll into that window pretty soon. Because those data you just showed yeah. said uh, in, in, even triple, you know, triple, triple vaxxed after six months. Before six months people after, answer, and, by the way, it's down to five months now. Remember, the CDC I, just changed the guidelines I, to five months. And, but yeah. before we move on to that question, can I just kind of clarify the aggregate kind of conclusion from this data, which is not that Omicron has escaped our, like, like, you know, our vaccine, you know, has escaped our current set of vaccines. It's that our vaccines seem to wear off pretty quickly. No, no, you have to be careful. Let's be careful of this biologically. The antibodies that are, that your body is creates in response to the vaccine, those wear off. And those are the leading line against infection, but the T cells and the B cells also created by the vaccine, they don't wear off. They're there. Right. That's why You're the severe, that's right, why the right, severe right, symptoms right, right. are that's so right, diminished. Right. And, and even in those data that yeah. Eric just showed us, the efficacy against hospitalization was still like 50%, and it didn't wane at anywhere near the rate that the symptoms were. Yeah, but I have to say, so I went, I went so I looked at some really good data that showed that, um, that actually counted by age group that, that found that the unvaccinated, again, this is not a randomized controlled experiment, unvaccinated, say, 70-year-olds were getting... 10% were becoming seriously ill. Now, I don't know whether they were vaccinated or not, but they were labeled as seriously ill. And that was something like one in a thousand for vaccinated. Now, again, this is just not a randomized controlled study, and, but, but it looks like it's really effective at preventing serious illness. Now, here's a question about the fourth, fifth, sixth, 11th booster. We should be doing randomized clinical trials. And the reason why we're not is it's not in the interest of the drug companies to do it because the drug is considered safe and therefore, they're just going to these recommendations are not really based on science. If, if only we had a very well funded yeah. center for disease control in this country <laughs> that could run some kind of objective it's, study it's, it's instead of just not. coming up with like, you know, right. business oriented recommendations for the public. I have to tell you, and I'm a little a little upset about it because the recommendation was just made to to boost uh, uh, children and the only quantitative data they could bring to the table that which shows that it that it helps was a petri dish analysis that mm. showed that the omicron virus is more is uh there's more antibodies it's more effective in a petri dish against omicron omicron than when not without vaccination and uh, without the booster that is and that seems to me just 
harrowing um, decision making, that they're not actually trying to do a clinical trial to see what happens with, with whoever. They're just looking purely at the health risks with the well, booster. And Kate, just, has- qu- just quickly to answer your question, I'm a mo- and similar to you guys, I'm now a month and a half away. If five months is the new six months, mm-hmm. I'm a month and a half away from possibly getting a fourth shot. And so I'll be very interested to see what comes out of Israel where yeah. they are giving the fourth shot. And, and I'm very interested to see what happens because, you know, unfortunately I've got a month and a half to look at that data because I'm strongly leaning towards getting a fourth shot right now. Um, I'm over 50. I, I don't have, I don't have any of these comorbidity issues, but if the data coming out of Israel suggests it increases again, the protection against serious hospital, I'm not going to get a fourth shot if someone just tells me it reduces your chance of getting infection. That's not enough anymore. That that wouldn't be enough for me. But Eric, but it, Eric, yeah. the issue though for us is it doesn't seem to any to there be any side effects, at least notable side effects, other than getting sick for a day. I didn't get sick. Right. Other people did. I, I didn't either. For people in our care. age group. But there is seems to be. Um, it's not that it was that notable, but if you're in the 16 to 24 year old range. Um, if you're male in particular, there does seem to be some potential heart risk. Um, and considering that their risk, their baseline risk in that age group is so low to start with, those need to be looked no, at. I w- I'm with you, Audie. And someone just has to tell me, I just, I mentioned this sort of semi off air before. Someone just has to tell me about, I know people put this term out there, long COVID. I, someone just has to tell me the potential, uh, how high a probability that is. Because even if I get Omicron, I get COVID via Omicron, and I don't get deathly ill. But someone tells me, and I have a friend, I won't mention who it is, but who got, has had brain fog. He has not been able to exercise properly for the last six to eight months. I don't want any of those things. And if someone <laughs> tells me that, and you know, I can get another shot that might help reduce by even a third or a half the chance that I'm going to get those symptoms, I'm doing it. I, I, w- I really wish there was more data on the vaccinated um, what what happens with those people? The only he data was vaccinated. We know, uh, he was vaccinated. When he, before he got his first his his uh, his case, he goes vaccinated. Correct. So what is known is that um, lingering systems symptoms, what you call long COVID, are highly correlated with the severity of illness. So the more sick you were, the more likely to have you are to have long you know longer lingering symptoms. Um, but on the other hand, hold the, on, Adi, let's just stop there for a second because yeah. if that's true, then all these other things that are kind of in Eric's favor are in his favor with this because, because he's triple vaxxed relatively young, relatively Mm -hmm. healthy. The chance of his ever acquiring severe is low. That's right. And so the worst symptoms of long COVID come from the people who were hospitalized and ventilated. The next worst for the people who were hospitalized without ventilation. The third people were really sick and that there were people who were very moderately sick who did develop, um, you know, uh, uh, retained some of their symptoms, most notably the loss of taste and smell those. And those are extremely specific. So you can't claim that this is, you know, uh, a besides those, you could argue that like a lot of long COVID is maybe just, you know, there's long term kind of consequences to having a severe illness, you know, kind of. Right. Regardless of COVID or not. And this is the question that scientists are really trying to peer into. And there's there is there's a very interesting study that has been controversial and looked at healthcare workers in England. And essentially they all claim to have had COVID, but because not all of them were tested, um, and a lot of them weren't tested, none of them would have been hospitalized. That was the uh, that was the rule for this study. 
they did serology tests on them. And about 40, four to one had turned positive, had positive serology ratio to the ones who didn't. So about 20% did not have any antibodies, yet they had claimed they had COVID. And they looked at the percentage of the people who claimed long-term symptoms. And guess what? After about four to six or eight months, there wasn't that much difference between the long-term symptoms group who, who didn't have COVID and the ones who did have COVID. Remember, everybody had sickness. They just thought it was COVID, right? Um, except, and so you could say, well, maybe the serology wasn't picking things up exactly, but no, you couldn't say that because the sense of smell, the odds ratio was like a thousand to one. In other words, nobody who, who didn't have um, antibodies to COVID lost, uh, continued to lose their sense of smell or lost it at all. So the bottom line was, is that there was a certain elevation and these were all mild, mild, mild cases, a little elevation in fatigue, a little elevation in headache, a little elevation in sort of clarity, what you call brain frog, but very slight elevation and not that much. And so it could be really just a function of just having been sick. Let me, let me ask y'all uh, back to the, we'll kind of end with the personal policies, personal question again. I listening to you guys talk about the risk of long COVID or some of these severe consequences and Eric saying, I, I want the fourth shot. If it reduces the risk of that, I want the fourth shot. And I, I share that sense. And more generally, I feel like I kind of don't care how small the probabilities are um, given. And here's the key bit. I don't find it that inconvenient to manage this thing. And, I, and it could be because I live in the country and don't have a very complicated life. Could be. So I'm curious, like, where do y'all find it binding right now? Now, this is with all the apologies and recognition that we live privileged lives. But like there's there are decisions we all have to make. And I find myself like, look, to avoid a very small probability of very severe outcomes, I'm willing to do some things. And I don't find wearing a mask that onerous. I've gotten accustomed to eating outside of restaurants or whatever. Now we can keep on going down the list. I'll find something that I'm willing, that I'm willing to bear risk for. And so I'm curious in your own experience, what is it that binds right now? What would, what would you like to be able to do more of that you're not doing because you're being risk averse? And just how do you think about this? Eric. So if I was going to go to a large indoor event now, let's say, for example, my wife and I, in theory, are going to a concert on Saturday. I would wear, if I go, if we go at all, I would wear a much stronger mask. I'd go back to the N95 mask and I probably wouldn't take it off while I was in the event. Like, you know, maybe six months ago, a year ago, when he thought things were waning, I might've worn a cloth or a surgical like mask. Maybe I would have had a drink, but you know, had my mask with me. I don't see myself doing either of those things right now, uh, given my preference for not getting Omicron and the concern about the long run effects. So I would up my mask game and I would probably be very careful about going to large number of people indoor events for me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Things I'd like to be able to do now that I can't do yet is teach in person. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully in a month or so, I'll be able to do that. I'm looking forward to the days. That's, when Shane, that's not a, that's not a personal decision. That's the university's decision, right? Because you, you, if, if we hadn't changed our policy a few weeks ago, you would be walking into a classroom next week with a mask on. That's right. right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess if we're talking about stuff, I, I thought it was more sort of what am I still missing? That no, no, you're personal. Like what are you keeping yourself from? And you might not be keeping yourself from anything. Like, where are you drawing the line right now? 
I, yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure I am keeping myself from doing really anything at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm obeying, I'm obeying the rules. That's surprising. I'm defaulting to society's sort of rules right now, but I don't think uh, I, I'm doing anything on top of those. Well, uh, I can go on. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly where Shane is. I think I'm maybe a little bit, I mean, uh, good to see Shane is, I feel like I got COVID recently. So, um, which means I feel like I have elevated antibodies. I know I can get right. Omicron um, because I know people who've gotten Delta and Omicron. So it's not for sure, um, but I think it was relatively close. So I think I still have a pretty good high levels. And I think the, the Omicron is, is rather weak. And as I said, oh, my entire family has gone through this recently and, and, and it ranged from a sore throat to, to nothing. Um, so I'm really doing nothing at all, period. I'm just trying to live my life as normal. And in fact, I actually, but the mask thing depends on your environment. Um, I don't like to teach with a mask. Obviously, if it's required, I'll, I'll do it. If it's not required, I won't do it. Um, but I actually just switched synagogues because I went from a place that required masks to one that didn't um, oh. because I didn't like it. And, and, and it was just uncomfortable to sing in, to sit there. And there's another one equally, the equal distance from my house. And, you know, the, and a nice rabbi makes a nice talk, you know, whatever it is. And I just decided I would just go there because, because I, it was just easier and I didn't have to have to worry about masking. I did notice that in the, in the congregation that wasn't masked, didn't require masks, many people did them. They, they brought some had an N95, others had two masks and others had nothing. They kind of decided that, that um, they would let you bring your own personal risk choices to, to, the, to the congregation. Okay, super interesting and helpful. I'm glad. I'm, I thank you for that. One last question before we roll out of here. A little prediction game. This is our first episode of 2022, and we're almost two straight years of opening the show with COVID-19. Yes or no, on our first show of 2023, will we have a COVID segment? Predictions around the table. Yes. Greater than 50%, though that's pretty way lame. I should give you a probability, right? Um, uh, well, you could use what is binary, but if you want to give us a probability, that would be in line with the I, I would say that it's probably in the 60 to 70% range would be my best estimate. Okay. Actually. I think we would, we, I think that we're still talking about COVID. I'm not sure we'll talk about it every week, but I think we're still talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm more in like the 50-50. I think it's a great, it's a great prediction exercise. I really do think it's, it, it's you know, pretty close to 50-50 in my mind. I'll, I'll lean slightly towards it, you know, in, in part because we'll be coming off the hall. If it really is the first segment of 2023, we'll be coming off the holidays. And if there is going to be, you know, I, I think COVID, COVID, you know, even once it is kind of endemic and sort of a little bit more a part of our regular lives, there'll probably be some pretty strong seasonality still to it. So I think this time next year will probably be kind of peak COVID season for next year, whatever that means again. Okay. And I would just say, given what we talked about earlier about the million, two million cases a day, that if we're still talking about it a year from now, then maybe there's another uh, variant that is concerning me. And so I'm not, I, I'm going to say yes, but if the answer is yes, I'll be very concerned because I don't think we'll be talking about Omicron and wow, people are getting this light version of it because it should burn through the population in less than a year if this is the last, in some sense, pandemic variant. I'd like to ask, pose another question. Oh, uh, oh I, I, have to, I have to answer first. Oh, yeah, if you're going to gonna change the topic. I'm going to go no, but I'm, I realize it's mostly motivated reasoning. I'm going to go 40%. Um, though I'm, I'm, I'm susceptible to Shane's argument that the first of the year right after the holidays might be 
might be bring us back in. But I'm going to say that we're going to be out of our routine, but I realize it's probably wishful thinking. Adi. Well, I wanted to ask another question of you all. We did a, we did a, a poll some time ago about how many of us will have COVID through Delta. Um, that turned out to be just me. Now that we're into the next stage, by, by, by January 3rd, how many, what's the expected number of COVID uh, succumbents among us? Next year? Yep. I feel well, like, oh, I, at I least think... me, at least one more. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll be a minor miracle if I don't somehow get COVID this year, I think. Well, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I have to admit, I'm walking around. I kind of want to keep my streak now. I've got a little bit of pride on having lived a pretty normal life for two years and not gotten COVID. I mean, I've flown all over the country, flown overseas, taught a bunch of hundreds of students, and, and I'm a little bit proud of having, and probably too proud. <laughs> So I'll probably I'll pride growth before the fall. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna get I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get it this year despite efforts. All right. I'm in Kate's I'm in Kate's camp. I have pride, but I'm realistic. <laughs> All right, guys. That's our COVID segment to start 2022. We still have three. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. You guys can jump in here in a way if you want to. We'd love to hear from you. Twitter is probably the best way to reach us. We've been following our guests for coming up on eight years now. At W Moneyball is our handle there, at W Moneyball. Hit us up. Give us your suggestions, observations, complaints, whatever you got. You can also email us. We have a mailbag via email. The address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read them all and we love to hear from you. We get as many as we can on the air, but we read them all. So don't hesitate to drop us a note. Guys, we've got a couple of open topics, short open topic segments before we roll into our final segment with an interview. Q2 here, it seems like we got to talk a little football. We've just blown through all but the last of the college football season. All 42 bowls. Well, there's one tonight. Oh, we've got one in front of us, Tuesday night, lingering. And then we've got the big game, Alabama-Georgia. Yet another Alabama-Georgia. Before we talk about what you expect in that game, which is going to happen the night before we record our next show, anything about the college football bowl season jump out to you or the first two playoff games? Yeah, I mean, I think the – you know, the ranking systems, whether it's Massey Peabody or other FPI, et cetera, I think they were pretty spot on. I mean, I, you know, I wrote in our rundown, you know, I watched the, both games. I watched uh, Alabama, Cincinnati, Georgia, Michigan. I watched almost every bowl game. I watched Ohio State, Utah. I think Cincinnati and Michigan, who they were who we thought they were. Um, they're not beating those other teams. I think the strength, you know, you, I think all season, your analytics, Cade, had, there were three very good teams in college football, and neither of them were Cincinnati and Michigan. Um, And I think the analytics played out the way we did, we thought. And as a matter of fact, I don't even think that Alabama or Georgia, who won those games comfortably, they weren't even playing full throttle. Like, they were just playing, we're just going to play vanilla-flavored football, run the ball, pass the ball, 
you know, conservatively, and we'll just win by 14 to 21 points. If we have to turn on the Jets, we can. I, I just felt like it, those games weren't particularly competitive, and I don't even think Alabama or Georgia was – not that they weren't trying. They were trying, but they weren't even, like, breaking open the whole playbook. You know, the, 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 the analytics was what it was. You know, you had – you told me – us four or five weeks ago, based on analytics, that if Alabama, Georgia were playing anybody but Ohio State, it was like a 13 to 14 point spread. Well, that's what the game showed. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. do you think, I mean, I mean, I guess you just mentioned Ohio State. So my question was going to be, do you think they, it would have been competitive with any other teams in there? And you're really kind of saying that only maybe Ohio State would have made that a more competitive Not the Ohio State team we saw play Utah because of all the players that were missing that opted out of the bowl games. Right, 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 right. And so, look, it's a great topic. You know, it's a topic we can talk to Eric Eager about, topic we talk to lots of people about, is what's the value of players. But literally, Ohio State was missing its top two receivers. It was missing four or five starters on defense. And so Ohio State was very – I mean, it was a great game against Utah, but that wasn't Ohio State. That was a weakened Ohio State against Utah. And and to be fair, Utah was weakened as well. Utah was playing a running back. Right, but not as weakened. Not as weakened as Ohio State was. I would would hate to be be starting a a running back in my defensive secondary against against, uh, that offensive, even with their – even down their top two receivers. I mean, we saw what their third best receiver could do. I mean, have you ever seen a game? I mean, Never. every now and then you see, I mean, you know, what did, what did, uh, what did we have in the title game last year? The receiver out of Alabama. I mean, well, Devonta Smith, the guy yeah. we had on the Eagles, remember he was injured. He didn't play the whole game. Even he had like 205 yards or something like that yeah, in like yes. three quarters of play. And it, this but, is going to be an increasing trend with the bowl games, right? That essentially any, all the bowl games that aren't part of the national championship Correct. are going to become more and more kind of exhibition like in a sense that like, you know, there's not going to be much incentive for the best yeah. kind of most professional ready players to actually participate. Actually, Kate, let me ask you a question related to that. Do you see that as something that could push towards an expansion of the playoff teams? Because it's, it's, now what's, I mean, this may be, it'd be, look, I'll take it for any reason, you know, because I want to see the Boise States, the Oklahoma States, whoever it is in to have a shot. But to me, what Shane just said might be the impetus. Yeah, Eric, it's a, it's a great observation on your point uh, part. And uh, Stuart Mandel was just talking about it on, on his podcast this week, his podcast with Feldman, exactly this point that one of the only ways to elevate these second-tier bowls, given that the playoff exists now, is to expand the playoffs. Because, I mean, he, he gave the example of the Notre Dame-Oklahoma State game, which was a phenomenal game. I mean, great the, game. the Cowboys were behind the whole game, and they come back and beat Notre Dame, and that's a great win for that program. It's one of the best seasons they've ever had. But that's kind of it, you know, and it was a little bit, anti- a little bit anticlimactic. Imagine if that were the quarterfinal. And, and now, you know, one team goes on and nobody opted out because they were in the playoffs. And that's what you would have if you added another round um, ahead of this. Yeah, I agree with you. I thought uh, Oklahoma State, North uh, Notre Dame and Ohio State, Utah were two of the best college football games. I don't care who was on the field. Those were two of the most fun yeah. college football games to watch that I've ever seen. OK, so, Eric, that's another good point here, though, because you're also saying exhibition. But, you know, it turns out a postseason college football exhibition is still pretty great fun, or at least there's some chance that it'll be a phenomenal thing to watch. And so I think we ought to be a little careful about poo-pooing it too much. 
but I love the additional argument for an expanded playoff. I think another, yeah, I think another thing from an analytics perspective is, does this have any impact? I, I, we don't really have the data, unfortunately, to answer this, but, you know, Adi's been studying, you guys have both studied uh, recruiting. So does this have any impact on recruiting? You just said Oklahoma State had the best year they ever had. So their coaches can go out and say, we beat Notre Dame. There's no asterisk. They beat Notre Dame. Come to us. Don't go to Notre Dame. You know, yeah. uh, Utah, Ohio State beat Utah. Okay, well, Ohio State can say even a weekend Ohio State beat the whatever Mountain West champion 11-win Utah team. This could, could we actually look? And that's what the, the announcers, at least the narrative around it is, this is going to have a big impact on recruiting. I, I think that people overreact to singular events with recruiting. Recruiting is, a, is mostly a long-run process, a multi-year process. And so I would almost, almost by definition, any reaction to an individual game is going to be an overreaction. The one, the one exception I've seen to that, of course, is, you know, and tons of statistics papers have been written on this, is the Doug Flutie game, Boston College and winning that game against Miami. That's yeah. the one exception I've seen where they literally did long-run tracking of applications to the college. Uh, app, you know, <laughs> no, they literally, well, the quality of Boston SAT College scores. On the map. Yeah, yeah, it actually put them on the map. And so I've seen, like, as literally an event study done of that game. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, uh, I, I, sorry, Kay, I, I, I'm curious about kind of on the other side of things for NFL teams looking at these bowl games as part of their evaluation of players. Right. Obviously, in their current if, if it stays sort of the, or if it goes even more towards this ex- exhibition form, there's going to be no value because all the top players won't be participating in these bowl games anyway. But if it if it if they were participating aren't the bowl games kind of the best you know because it's basically against the best competition right yeah. like so so a team like cincinnati the bowl game is much more impactful in terms of evaluation of its players than probably most of the games that played during the season and so from the nfl perspective wouldn't they also you know kind of have a desire that these bowl games stay a little bit more relevant and kind of you know you know, involve kind of the, the, the athletes that they actually want to, you know, have as draft picks. That's an in- interesting question. I, I'm, I, I, I agree with your analysis that an, well, one, an extra game of tape is helpful period yeah. and against good competition is the most. And, and we certainly have historical cases kind of like what, you know, kind of the, the other, the, the Doug Flutie, Daniel Jones kind of like famously was kind of like essentially got his New York giants draft pick, um, out of you know whatever his performance was at the at the what, what they call it version of the Pro Bowl whatever it's called these well the, yeah those those games all star games matter a lot yeah. and it's not just the game but it's the week of practice because it's good on good and, the, and they get yeah. their guys are standing around watching it very closely but I, this all reminds me a little bit Shane of I, I think this was more than apocryphal but it's certainly there's some certainly some anecdotes out there about like the the role that like Super Bowl MVPs would be overpaid in the subsequent free agent market right there was mm-hmm. a year was it a cowboy defensive back who had a couple of interceptions in the super bowl he was high dollar free agent never did another thing in his life just this overreaction to these individual games and also by the way it's, i want to say on college football but also dexter jackson in the super bowl for the buccaneers he was the mvp of that game and he was overpaid <laughs> fortunately not by the bucks but i also want to move forward because we always talk about Kate, I know you do in Massey P about the role of priors, but which prior I'm shocked that Georgia is shocked. favored by three points over <laughs> Alabama. 
Well, I mean, this, there's a couple yeah. priors. Let me just talk about a couple priors. That and and Adi's been Mr. Base Rate. So first of all, I think Saban's base rate against his assistant coaches is some massive number. Now that you might say that's is not that a relevant. real thing. Yeah, is that no, a well, real well, thing? Well, I'm just bringing it up. Second, Kirby Smart, the coach of Georgia, is 0-4 against Saban. Saban is 7-2 and in national championship games. His only losses, of course, have come to Clemson twice in the national championship game. And so the fact, and also I think, I don't, I don't remember the exact score. They just beat Georgia by, I don't remember if it was 14, 17, 21, somewhere in that 14 to 21 yeah. range. All of these data points are suggesting to me that Alabama should not necessarily be the underdog in this game. And that's why I was surprised to see that Georgia is favored by three in this game. Okay, a couple of things. One, uh, here's a question for you. How, that's seven, with seven and two. Was that the Saban record in national in championship? national championship games? Unbe- un- unbelievable. That guy's played. That's coached nine. That's unbelievable. But here's my question for you: How many of those happened in the pre-playoff era, where they had a full month or five weeks to prepare for that game? So. I people, I mean, he's such a good coach. People, I think he's two and two in the playoff era, right? Yes, exactly. So I, I think that that is not quite as impressive. Uh, if you take away the, the full month of prep, if you look at what he's done in these first round games, like one of the reasons you might've thought he, you should take, you should lay the points with Alabama against Cincinnati is that Saban got a month to prepare for them. He doesn't get that for Georgia. He may, he may not need it because he knows the team pretty well, but he only gets kind of a normal week almost. So I think that, I think that's, part of the story so i don't like any of the stuff you gave basically i don't i don't think there's anything to but they are, you're not disputing well, and, the data you just don't want to use them as informative prior and, and, exactly. and yeah and i'll right. bring i'll bring in some additional data points i feel like it was only like a month maybe five weeks ago on wharton moneyball where you were talking about how alabama was terrible well, not terrible but you, you didn't believe in alabama <laughs> it was only like five six weeks ago you didn't believe in alabama you're like they were winning ugly <laughs> They were like, you know, all this stuff. So I kind of feel like, I mean, but that's true. That's a lot. A lot of people surprised that they're not. I I mean, I kind of agree with your central point, Eric. That I'm surprised they're also favored. But you know, maybe some of that is kind of getting worked in. You know, worked into these things. Well, let me tell you where the models are, and we're only one model, but Massey Peabody is it. You know, right on top of the numbers here. So it's like three and a half or something by Georgia. Georgia favored. Georgia, and even the total, we're right on top of the total. I mean, we're just lining up. At this point in the college football season for the very high profile teams, a lot of the models kind of start corresponding closely with the market. And that's what we're seeing here. And it's just, Eric, we've seen like base rates. No, I know we, there's nothing. We have, there's... Thought, we have thought Georgia was the best team. Yes. All, all season long. Essentially. I'm with you. There's and nothing, not a little bit. There's nothing going that went on during the season except Alabama beat Georgia by whatever the number was. And it was a big points. number, but Eric, here's like, you like to play the psychological games. How much harder is it for, a rival to beat its a team, a team to beat its rival twice in the same season. People, we should have data on this because it doesn't happen a lot, but people talk about it being hard and it, intuitively it is hard. Yeah, no, I, I think we could look at, there's a data-based version of that. I think the fact that Alabama won that game though, I would be very, you're right. I have no problem with the Massey Peabody prediction of three and a half, nor the betting line of three. I think that's accurate based on the data. But I, I just, I have, you know, everything I said is true. Saban has like a 95% winning percentage or more against coaches that coached against him. His record in the national championship game. He beat Alabama two weeks or, you know, five weeks ago, two games ago. 
All of that suggests to me that Alabama is peaking at the right time. But I'm not disagreeing with you, Shane. Nothing I saw from Alabama prior to that game against Georgia suggests that they were any good. Just a quick perspective. Three points means a lot in the NFL, but in college where, I mean, these are the only two teams where you could pair them up and it'd be less than a 10-point spread, right, for the championship. So maybe three points is basically nothing. It's like essentially. Well, let's treat it as nothing. It's a a toss-up. Quick round the table, very quick. We're out of time. Straight up. Alabama or Georgia? Who's going to win? Alabama. 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 <laughs> I'm really sliding into the minority here. I'm going to go Georgia again. I'm the motivated reasoning person. I'm, I just want it to be true, so I'm going to keep on believing it. But I am on Georgia. I would, I'd probably even lay the points, but definitely if you're going to give them to me straight up, I'll take Georgia here. I, I, I do believe in this. It's hard to beat your rival twice in the same season. And uh, I think they've got motivation on their side. Moreover, the base rate means that they're a stronger team this year. All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton. But we still have, no, that's two quarters, two quarters. We still have two quarters to go. Come back. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now, another open topic line. We got the whole crew in here. We've had them in here for the whole show, and we're going to have them all the way through the end of the show. We have a good conversation with Eric Eager coming up Q4. Q3, guys, we haven't talked about NFL yet. I know we want to talk a little baseball, but let's touch on the NFL. Anything, we'll have a lot in front of us after the season's over. we got a lot of playoffs in front of us, but anything right now, catch your eye. Well, the two things that I noticed is, first of all, we're coming up to the last week of the season. 13 out of the 16 games have playoff implications. That's so let great. me say what I mean by that. It doesn't mean we know who's in the playoffs for a lot of the teams, but it either it affects the seeding. So yeah. in some sense, you might say, well, it doesn't matter. No, it matters. What's the difference between two and the three seed? Oh, it's a big difference. First of all, who's assuming the one seed is necessarily going to beat the four seed or the six seed? That's not assumed. And if you're the two seed, you get two playoff games at home as opposed to the three seed who may only get one. So literally 13 of the 16 games have playoff implications, including one very interesting game between the L.A. Chargers and the Las Vegas Raiders, which has been flexed to the Sunday night game. So let me just say why it's interesting. It's interesting because it's a win-or-go-home game, like both of them. But there's actually four teams in the AFC fighting for two playoff spots. But the key that makes it interesting is the uh, Indianapolis Colts. The Colts are playing at Jaguars the last week of the season. Everyone expects the Colts to win, and they'll probably win the game. But if they were to lose the game, then the Chargers and the Raiders, if they were to tie each other, they would both make the playoffs. So instead of it being a win or lose, go home game for one of the two of them, they could collude in quotes, both decide we'll just kneel down the whole game. Obviously, the NFL would find them billions of dollars if they did that. <laughs> but in theory, they could play for a tie and they both make the playoffs. The thing is, the Colts, though, do have an incentive to win that game because if they lose and the Steelers win, then the Steelers go to the playoffs and the Colts don't. So the Colts, assuming the other game's not a tie. So the Colts definitely have to win that game against the Jaguars. They've not clinched. But you know me, I'm always the chaos guy. I'd love it if the, and I I like the Colts this year. I'd like the Colts to lose to the Jaguars, and I want to see what happens in that Chargers. Oh, it would be the most glorious thing ever. But uh, sadly, it's a 15-point line. I mean, the the Colts are favored by 15 points. It shouldn't happen, but... I I think it's less likely that the Colts lose the Jaguars than that other game ends in a tie. 
Well, oh, I would, I would, if that's, so what do you think would happen fellas? If, if the Colts happen to lose, what's your prediction for how those teams play that Sunday night? They have to play competitively. No, they hate yeah. each other. They're division rivals. It's, yeah, they're going to play. I, they're not playing for a tie. And what that's if right. it's late kneel downs, it would be really tough to no, no. collude on an outcome like that. Right. Well, I, Remember, I, I disagree. Yeah. I disagree. You find yourself in the fourth quarter. Yep. And things are tight and maybe someone yeah. ties it late yeah. and they're like, okay, well, it's tied now. Yeah, that's and true. It, it doesn't require kneel downs to end up in a tie. And we have ample evidence from the World Cup. Now, look, you might think the World Cup's a little more corrupt than the National Football League, but this said, there's a famous case of this happening in the World Cup before they figured out they I had mean, to- A, ties are about 80% of World Cup games anyway. Like it's a, the I'm base advance, rate. I'm talking about advancing. Very different. Advancing out of the group stage into the yeah. knockout round. And until until they learned they had to play the games at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they teams would learn after the fact that they just tied because of what happened before. I, I just, you know, Kate, Kate, if Indi- I like the way you're thinking. If Indianapolis loses, there is no doubt in my mind, there is some, I'll use the word crossing point in that game based on time where if that game is tied, they're going to play for a tie. I don't know if that's in the fourth quarter. I don't know if it's in overtime. I don't know when it is, but I completely agree with you there yeah, is, yeah. and I hope it happens. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I think it'd be great. <laughs> My favorite part of that would be the Steelers being eliminated in a three-way tie, including a tie. <laughs> right, the Steelers would get eliminated. No, no, the Steelers would get eliminated only if, look, if the Colts lose and the Steelers win, the Steelers would pass the Colts, and the Steelers would pass the loser of the Chargers Raiders game. That so the Steelers need the Colts to lose to make the playoffs, and okay. not and that other game not be a tie. Yeah, right. No, this is what I. This is another feature of it that appeals to me. Um, though I have to say, Tomlin just set this. I mean, I have a lot of respect for Tomlin as a coach, and he just had some unbelievable number of seasons. Fifteen. Fifteen. 15. Winning, winning record, 15 seasons is winning record. The only coach really, I've ever done that for uh, 15 seasons with a winning Really record. something. Um, or first, right, 15. Let me just also say one last thing, is that if you had told most of us, let's assume the Steelers don't make the playoffs, they have a very low chance, that only one team in the, I'll see if I get this right, AFC North would make the playoffs. First, people would have been shocked. And second, if you had told them it was the Bengals oh, yeah, and no yeah, one yeah. else, that's the unpredictability of football. The fact that it's only one team from that division and it's the Bengals, not the Steelers, not the Ravens, not the Browns, who were all hyped <laughs> up at the beginning of the season. That's why they play the games. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's good fun. All right. Well, after they play the games, they start voting people into the Hall of Fame. And in baseball, they're doing that right now. Eric, you've pulled up the kind of the table, the, this vote table, and find some interesting things. And Adi, of course, thinks about this 365 around the year. So <laughs> what's, what do you see in this table? And tell us well, what's interesting here. The table is Ryan Thibodeau's table, a Hall of Fame tracker. Um, and basically, he, he, uh, he trolls the net, uh, Twitter and wherever, social media, where, they, where the, the, uh, the Baseball Writers Association uh, voters publish their ballots. And he collects it. And you track it. And so what's fun about it is to try to predict who's going to get in after only seeing a partial sample. That's why we statisticians find this. I find this particularly entertaining. I also like to root for some of our players. So the big news, of course, is that Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling are all in their last year. And uh, Big Pappy and A-Rod are in their first year. And so people are trying to figure out what's going to happen. Um, Predictably, Bonds and Clemens are up uh, uh, quite a bit um, than they were in previous years. Schilling looks like he's taking a hit. In other words, there seems to be a little bit of moving away from Schilling's in order to pepper up uh, Bonds and Clemens. 
And the other big news is guess who's leading at this point? Shane? Ortiz, which Ortiz. shocks me. Shocks <laughs> me. I mean, Big Poppy, I think, should go in the Hall of Fame. Don't, no doubt about it. But, but no, but A Rod is, is, is in the 50s. So, yeah. you know, he's way behind, um, behind like Scott Rowland and, and other players who are, who are later in their, in their progress. But, you know, both of them are steroid yep. painted, right? And A-Rod, I mean, it's wonderful as we like Big Pappy. He ain't A-Rod. <laughs> no, no. And I mean, it, it just kind of goes, I, and I mean, I, I, it just obviously suggests that in people, in the writers, in the voters' minds, the taint on A-Rod for really? steroid use is much larger than Thanks. the taint on Big Pappy. And I mean, like, you know, he, he did actually, you know, he would, I mean, there is a bigger taint, I think, Dave. Well, A-Rod admitted Poppy, it, and but... A-Rod admitted it, and, and David Ortiz was on that secret list, but never the official list. So, I mean, yeah. there's, there's 100% with A-Rod, because he personally admitted it. But I just want to go, go through the math here. Right now, Clemens and Bonds are roughly at 80%. But remember, this is of mostly public ballots. Another very interesting so let is, me let me let me let me clarify. Seventy five is the cutoff, right? So everybody over seventy five percent is the cutoff, it. and we've okay. got a third of the ballot so far. But if you do the here's the concerning math. If you're if you root for Bonds and Clemens, in previous years, private versus public was about a twenty plus percent decrease. So let's imagine Bonds and Clemens have eighty percent of the public vote, but only sixty percent of the private ballots. Then you have to say, so what's the mixing fraction of the two that would get you there? And it's about two-thirds, one-third. In other words, at least two-thirds of the ballots have to be public ballots. But the problem is the percentage always goes down over time. I'm predicting, given these numbers, and I've done a little bit of math on this, I'm predicting that Bonds and Clemens come up short. They're not going to get to 75%. They'll get to the mid to high 60s, but they're not going to get to 75%. Adi, do you read the numbers any different? I read it exactly the same way, Eric. There's actually three groups. There's public uh, announced before the ballot. There's public announced post conclusion. Ah. And then there's pure private that isn't announced. I mean, then you can't check who it is, but you get the tallies. They, they increasingly go against uh, Bonds and Clemens. So the public tends to like him, uh, vote for them the most. The public, but that's released late, likes it about 20% less. And the private likes 30% less. Okay. So on balance, so, it, it, so it, and they, of course, the last two groups are, the last group is the smallest, about 68 ballots last year. The, the, uh, the middle group is about 95 ballots and, the, and there's about 205 in the big group. So, oh, so it's really about 60-40 then. So yeah. it's act, you're saying about 40% are either public after the fact or private. That's right. They're not getting there. And, and they, need, they need to be about 85 to 86%. I know, the, by, if, if we transfer that same logic over to Big Poppy, which why... We don't know. Well, we don't know. But I mean, assuming the people that dislike him, dislike him for somewhat the same reasons, um, then nobody gets in this year, right? Uh, Then he's not going to make it either. But I have to say, but he's a DH, which means that the dislike for the DH could be more uniform across the groups. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I guess my my, my, my hypothesis that those that are voting against Big Poppy are voting against them because of the steroid but I guess, is, 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 is not a, is, you know, not necessarily. But I think you're right. Back. I think if, if you ask yeah. me to make a prediction right now, by the way, six people are going into the hall of fame through the veterans committee. Let's ignore that for just a second. Please. If you ask me of these players, I think nobody's going to get in this year. I don't think anybody's getting in. A couple of questions. Had, if a you had to put of... money on one, who would you put Eric? 
I, it, it'd have to be on Big Poppy. Yeah, me too. Okay. So what percentage of people go in, of the people who go in eventually, what, how many get in on their first ballot? Not many. I, I think it's only I, like 10 or 15%, something like yeah, that. I mean, it's guess. hard to figure that out because the best players get in on their first ballot. Um, and, uh, but so, look, let's uh, be clear. If, if there wasn't any steroid issues, et cetera, we have at least three first ballot Hall of Famers on the ballot right yeah, now. Yeah. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Alex Rodriguez are top tier Hall of Famers if their numbers were clean numbers. And there's no dispute. They would have been in. I mean, they would and all I, be first and, ballot. And, and I'm just trying to get a sense of how special that is. It's yeah. special. I, Special. They're extraordinary, extraordinarily special players. Big Poppy, by the way, forget the steroid taint. In my view, he's absolutely a Hall of Famer, but he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer. So what, have, yeah. what about Sammy Sosa? It's hard to remove the steroid taint there, but is Sammy Sosa without the steroid taint? A Sosa first and McGuire probably would not have been first ballot Hall of Famers. They would have, even, made, it, sure. they would have made it, but yeah. they would not the have been first Sosa, ballot. The problem with Sosa and McGuire, unlike Bonds and Clemens, is Bonds and Clemens and A-Rod were extraordinary without steroids. And they just became even more extraordinary with steroids. It's hard to, to argue that Sosa and McGuire would have been top-tier players mm-hmm. without having been users. Andy Ramirez was also extraordinary without steroids. Uh, so Matt says, thank you, Matt. Matt says there's 58 first ballot Hall of Famers. I know for a fact that there's going into this year, there were 333. It's an easy number to remember, uh, Hall of Famers. So that would but mean. Just to touch and, more than one sixth. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just touch okay. more. Uh, is there a likability factor in the voting? A-Rod never that liked. Big Pappy hugely liked. Does that matter? Sure. Who's the only one who got, who's got a perfect ballot? A-Rod. I mean, I read Mariano Rivero, and he was yeah. a wonderful player, but also he was a saint. What can you do? Or I think Kurt Schilling's, uh, Kurt Schilling's candidacy is very much influenced by likability. Got yeah. it. All right. There you, you go. A little baseball, a little baseball in January. That has been three. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter is our interview segment, has become our interview segment over the last two years since we're virtual. We're delighted this week to have Eric Eager join us. Eric with PFF, of course, friend of the show. I'd say first tier friend of the show and uh, always have an enjoyable time when we get time with Eric. Eric, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, guys. uh, I'm, uh, I'm you know, it's been a fun season. It's a, a pleasure to be on with you guys. Always glad to have you. Got the full crew in here for the eager conversation. Listen, let's start just by asking. We're one week away from postseason, so we have a few weeks of football left. What are you most curious about in the rest of the NFL season? And we'll, we'll give you the last week of the regular if you want it, or you can just jump to the postseason. What are you most interested in seeing how, how it plays out? This year has been a year where, um, you know, you've gotten some noise, right? You've gotten the Chiefs. You know, the, the, the NFL adjusting their, uh, you know, sort of entire, um, you know, approach to trying to make teams like the Chiefs and the Bills less offensively potent, right? And then you've seen teams like Indianapolis, Tennessee, San Francisco have some pop-up success because they are sort of making – they're able to play sort of a more smash-mouth football uh, that, that curbs that kind of, um, you know, a defensive approach. Uh, and, and the question I have moving forward is, is that all just noise? Like, are we, 
are we like, you know, overreacting to some, you know, like the Colts going into Buffalo and winning or San Francisco winning against LA and, you know, the chiefs losing to all three divisional champions in the AFC besides themselves. And, you know, is it going to end up being what it, it seemingly always is, which is the best quarterbacks win at the end, or are we truly going to get a sort of a singular, uh, you know, um, uh, victor uh, come, you know, uh, you know, come Super Bowl Sunday? Great. So give us a story that is not noise. Give Play it out. Just give us the whole, just tie it together. We don't, it doesn't mean you have to believe it all, but give us one coherent story that says this isn't just noise because the noise is notable. I feel like this is one of the higher variance yo-yo kind of seasons for lots of teams than we've seen in a while. So tell me why you think that might not be noise, whether or not you believe it or not, give us the story. Well, I, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, uh, the season playing out the way that a quote should would be, you know, Green Bay being able to win two home games after a bye in Lambeau Field because their quarterback uh, is, is the best quarterback in the league. And then, um, you know, Kansas, you know, like this. So Tennessee right now is the favorite for the one seed. But I think, you know, I believe Football Outsiders said they were the worst one seed that they've charted since 1983. And, um, you know, we, we certainly don't have them as the top team in the AFC and so, you know, who upsets Tennessee in round in the second round would be a, an interesting question. But then, you know, a team like Kansas City or Buffalo ascending to the AFC title uh, and, and then a, a Super Bowl being played by two great quarterbacks, whether that be mm-hmm. Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady in the NFC side, maybe even Dak Prescott or Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, or even somebody like Justin Herbert or, or Joe Burrow on the other side. I think a noisy outcome would be a team with a running game, you know, sort of being the, the team that ends up winning it. Uh, may that be the Indianapolis Colts with Carson Wentz and Jonathan Taylor, or like the San Francisco 49ers with, uh, you know, their run first attack. I think that would be the noise. And, and you know, as you guys know, like noisy things happen uh, to bet on them to happen four straight weeks is, is a different story. Shane. Well, I guess one of the kind of signals would be, or the, 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 the that we've been kind of discussing is specifically kind of the spe- schemes that have been designed to try and slow down teams like Kansas City, this kind of too high safety or whatever type strategy. I guess one thing where where we would see, you know, if if a playoff team, you know, in the playoffs, a particular team succeeds at that strategy. I mean, I haven't watched every single KC game this year to sort of see whether it's like very distinct the teams that have that employ that scheme having success versus not, but do you kind of anticipate that in the playoffs, they are going to face that particular scheme um, and whether you think it's actually going to be successful or not? Yeah. I mean, like, so going into last week, my colleague Timo Riske who's a, a guest of the show as well. He said that the chiefs had, you know, in the last three weeks going into last week had earned a first down on 46% of their plays against two high looks, which was the highest in football during that time. And it was sort of one of those like, don't wound what you can't kill sort of like uh, Proverbs, right? Where, you know, can, can defenses evolve and, and create a steady state that's so uh, that's stable enough for it to matter for a whole year? Or does a guy like Andy Reid eventually, you know, have the thing oscillate uh, enough to, uh, you know, to turn over and, and, and learn a new way to win football games fast enough where as long as they can withstand the perturbation of, you know, four wins in their first or four losses, sorry, in their first seven games, then they come out stronger for it. Right. Like we talk about, you guys are, I think do the best job of anybody I listen to on talking about COVID. That's like sort of exactly what COVID's trying to do as a virus, which is sort of uh, you know, we attack it one way. It sort of evolves and, and comes back differently. 
um, you know, the Chiefs are sort of like you're know, like that offensively. And, and their issue with losing against the Bengals wasn't their offense uh, not playing well. It was their defense regressing a little bit a, a, as foretold. So, um, yeah, that that's really the interesting one. Like, do it, you know, can the best defensive minds evolve their scheme faster than the best offensive minds evolve their scheme? And like historically, the answer to that question has been no. Right. So even if the Chiefs do face what has been the blueprint for beating them, like that blueprint seems to be wearing off. So. I think the answer to your question is yes, they're going to face that. The, the answer, you know, to whether that's going to be effective, I think is just be seen. How, how do you, Eric, how do you and both pro football focus think about non-stationarity in the following sense? You know, I'm a, like everybody knows for eight years, but for longer, I've been a Buccaneers fan, but remember no Chris Godwin now, no Antonio Brown, maybe no Leonard Fournette. Mike Evans is not a hundred percent. So essentially their top four offensive players are out, which means they may have to go to a ground and pound, whether it's Ronald Jones, whether it's short passes to their tight ends. How do you think about teams that due to injuries due to COVID actually have to change their style? And in some sense to me, that's not a, even if the bucks are still good, they're not as good as they were when they had all those offensive weapons. So how do you think about non-stationarity during the season? Oh, it's big. And I think, I know, uh, you know, Cade, Cade will talk to you about like, you know, with, with, you know, uh, Rufus and his betting models, how you sort of have to, uh, you know, exponentially weigh recency versus past play, right? Like, um, you know, for example, you know, we know that like priors really do have predictive power even further into the season, most years in the NFL. Um, but this year might be different, right? This year, you might have to when you have you know, so for example our models will have like an ensemble between like a player level model so literally starting from the bottoms up and build a prediction there versus top down models which are you know sort of more you know on the aggregate you're trying to uh, minimize the error over the over a wide class of events and then you know you sort of have an ensemble of those things the question being like what are those weights and, and you know this might be a season where you have to weigh towards the very specific now the issue is uh, you know when you have a bottoms up model, like every component of that model has to be pretty good or else the, the errors compound in such a way. So, and I think that that's where, you know, we come up for air and look at the season and how un, uh, unpredictable it's been. It's probably precisely because we've, we have such a hard time in football, uh, you know, basically you know, pricing out what changes are going to be, you know, like there are guys that get COVID and then there are guys that get COVID and play through it and don't play as well. Right. Like Lamar Jackson, for example, was an example of that last year. Or Cam Newton. And so, and so we make, we make compounding errors by trying to be too specific. And so maybe a top down model works better there, but then the top down model is going to be more like prior driven and things like that. And the priors are probably nowhere close to being right anymore. And so it's a really good question. And I think the other thing that's important too, is the non-stationarity of the game itself, where, um, you know, for example, this season, we've just seen way more passes that have been like essentially short of the sticks or passes that have not been given a grade by PFF, meaning, you know, we don't call it good or bad. It's just a pass. Right. And that's again, because the defenses have, given quarterbacks fewer options in the passing game, fewer risks they're willing to take. And, and, you know, so we've had just stationaries in the way the game's played. And and how does that influence the way, uh, you know, that we make predictions? It's it's not easy. And, I, and you know, it's going to cloud how we make judgments in April for the draft and, and stuff like that, assuming that those uh, evolutions hold. And, of course, there's always the risk of believing it's 
uh, less, station, less stationary than it actually is. So this is one of the general flaws, I think, in human judgment is that we, we always think it's changing more than it actually is day to day. Changes probably more in the long term than we think it does, but day to day, we see it where it doesn't exist. I just want to say a couple of things real quick, Eric, and then pass it over to Adi, who's trying to jump in here. One, it would be it would be helpful to the football community, I think, if you guys had a little postseason uh, reflection on the changes that you think you've seen, because you guys look at it so closely. You have so many conversations with so many constituencies. You've been thinking about it so well for so long. It would be really interesting to hear you say things like that, like you just said, that defenses are giving offensive less opportunities to, 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 to less open receivers. Therefore we're seeing more neutral value passes short of the six. That's if that's fundamentally happening, that's really interesting. It'd be helpful to the casual watcher. I want to say one thing you flew by there. It was the main thing you were saying. I just want to give an emphasis is that y'all ensemble your models and in particular, not just any two, but you're, you're ensembling bottom up and top down and they have complementary flaws and they have complementary values and working together is one of the only ways to offset those things because they just have baked into them these mistakes and so we're often preaching ensembles and we're often talking about the tension between bottom up and top down and so i loved hearing that example from you Audie's trying to jump in here yeah i want to just uh clarify a couple of things to make a comment so when you talk about top down models and and, and bottom up models in football context the bottom up is when you essentially model other players and then you connect them together and then you then you push it up to see what how they'll do and then the top down would be looking at what's happening on the field more and then and then or look at the offenses or defenses more directly and and then and then you get that kind of waiting because you're looking at more recent games you're not looking at players so in order, yeah, so, to, so in order to model the team you have to look at what's happening on the field yeah so yeah. so real quickly this Audi comes mostly from the baseball world or first from the baseball world, yeah. which is all bottom up and they can all do bottom. that. Oh, there's, no, there's no interactions. And so yeah. this is what's so hard about football and even basketball. Yeah. Basketball got there before football did, but then Massey Peabody is like a classic top down. We're just working with like play, you know, play by play, what happens at the team level and inferring the strength from that. So, but, so go ahead. I'm so sorry. My question is actually relates to what you just said about one of the lessons that, that you've preached on our show, which I've, uh, which I've repeated outside the show and I, I'll stand by you is that no one player other than the quarterback really changes the odds in appreciable ways. Um, when they go down, if it's one player, you just doesn't change the, the, the forecasts in a, in a measurable or particularly predictable way. If it's not the quarterback. And I even said that to Justin Tucker once, and he got really angry at me. That was one of my, my <laughs> mistakes. He's like, what are you talking about? Um, well, let me, let me, let me, let me say two things about that and pass it over to Eric. Cause Eric's going to talk about where I'm wrong. I suspect what one to be precise. What I, what I say is the market overvalues the loss of any one player outside of quarterback. That's what I've said precisely. Um, but then what I confess to is that we're uh, limited by our methodologies. We've looked really hard, but it's what we're not real good at is identifying what's the difference between losing uh, one of the best tight ends in the game, say the one of the best two tight ends in the game versus losing the average starting tight end. It's pretty straightforward to get at the latter. It's hard to get at the former. And the, that's probably where the market may be a little bit better. It's when you have these exceptional talents, the best edge rushers, the two or three best edge rushers in the game, the two or three best wideouts in the game. What are the values of those guys? Really hard to estimate. And so I would, I would caveat it that way. And I just want to follow up, though. On the other hand, just, you know, you might say one player is, is hard to estimate, and that's true because the standard error or the variance on that would be hard. 
But if you had four or five, as Eric kind of brought this conversation to bear, right. that might be enough to be able to say bottom up, I mean, top to, uh, no, bottom up models, this is a problem. So to you, Eric, what do you think? Yeah, I, I so I think the the characterization that you guys have had is correct. I, I would say, and and as somebody who has followed the Ma- the Massey Peabody, uh, fra- you know, methodology fairly closely, I think like where that model won was exactly what Cade was saying, which is you know we we hear like we like the beat reporter exists for gambling. Let's be really honest, and and like so, the beat reporter guy says you know Tyree Kill is out for the Chiefs, and everybody rushes to bet you know the the other side. And it's like, you know, the, the, the top-down model is, is wagering on that entire movement being an overreaction. And I think for the longest time, because people weren't sophisticated enough to sort of deal with the correlations and deal with the, you know, the or ensemble, Frank, I think ensembling is the big deal, where it's just like, it's it just, you know, you get a vote, but not the biggest, you know, not you're, you're just contributing to something. And, and so the, the ultimate line movement in the model isn't as big as it may be if you only looked at one of the members of the ensemble. The, the, the Massey Peabody stuff was, you know, very much like betting on that, that being an overcorrection. And over time, they were, right? Like that was the, you know, that, that was, a, I think, a big aspect of that. Now I think folks are fairly sophisticated in modeling individual player values. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you take a player, you know, player in and out of a model, like, you know, I think it's fairly sharp. And I think that, that you know, the NFL market is sharp to begin with, but it's fairly mm-hmm. sharp at doing that. And then in the COVID era, though, what we've come across is this idea of what are called cluster injuries, which is if you take one guy off the offensive line, it's not going to move the line. But if you take four guys off an offensive line, it's not going to be that minuscule amount times four. It's going to be some sort of nonlinear uh, you know, effect of losing four different players. Uh, and we talked about this, I think the last time I was on the show, it's just like it, the weak, the weak link dynamic is a, is a big aspect of sort of all of that. Um, but that's extremely hard to do. And I think that that is where, you know, top down models still have their place in sort of steadying, uh, you know, the, the, the part, the, the full model when parts of the ensemble maybe overreact or underreact to uh, information regarding individual players. Mm-hmm. It's not just necessarily losing like four offensive linemen. It's maybe them plus the offensive line coach that could go down. It's kind of a really unique <laughs> right. kind of situation that we're, we find ourselves in right now. I actually wanted to kind of ask a, maybe a little bit of an unrelated kind of question, more about retrospectively looking at the season as opposed to kind of trying to predict uh, going forward, which is how, how do you kind of feel about cumulative versus rate kind of stats in football and cumulative versus rate records in football, because, you know, we, this is the first year where we're going to have a 17th game in the season. We're probably on our, on our way to having an 18th game, not very far in the future. And of course, most of the kind of historical records that I like at least pop into my mind in football are cumulative ones, you know, 50 touchdowns or, you know, however many like rushing yards um, per season. Should we be thinking, you know, given how, you know, the, the actual number of games is, has been changing, has changed several times in football's history, should we be 
thinking more about those in kind of a rate sense, like should OJ Simpson actually still have like the rushing record because he had the highest it's, number it's of actually yards Eric, per game? Oh, oh, oh you're right. Uh, you're right. He has more, more yards per game than Dickerson. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, Eric Dickerson has the 16-game record, but OJ yep. Simpson has the 14-game record, and yep. I think it's a higher yep. number of yards per game. Oh, for sure. Um. So, so yeah, I mean, how do we sort of – how should we kind of think about that? I mean, you know, obviously watching Co- what Cooper Cup's been doing this season has, has brought this uh, fresh into my mind. Yeah. And the, yeah. So I'll be quite frank. Like once I started getting into analytics and like consulting for teams and gambling and stuff like that, like I don't, that those numbers don't even like, I used to be able as a kid to tell you how many yards Chris Carter had uh, by week 14 or whatever. Like those are things like, I don't really think much about cumulative statistics or records as much anymore, which I guess answers your question, which is I more look at like rate stats Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And but, but mostly because of the predictive value as opposed to kind of the historical sort of perspective. Exactly. And, but like, and also just, and I think that this is maybe this is probably up in you guys' alley too. It's like, you're never going to be able to, you know, it, it, there are multiple players in football for whom you could say this player is the best at this, right? Because just because there's so many different permutations of what the the context were in that game like you guys talk about Cooper Cup and Cooper Cup's probably going to break I believe he's going to break Jerry Rice's yardage record maybe Calvin Johnson's I believe but like Jerry Rice also had 22 touchdowns in a season that was shortened by a strike to 12 games and like and and Reggie White I think had 21 sacks in that same strike shortened year and so like where do those go you know like there's a ton of like interesting uh sacks weren't even collected until you know 1982 I believe and then they just went back and like watched all the games and redid it like I think football is a very like noisy statistical game just from the it's not like baseball where you have these hallowed numbers like you know 73 home runs and all that kind of stuff and and, you know it's much more of like a it's much more of a noisy game where like we came in a guy. I met, I put something up on Twitter today. It was like, wh- who had the better career, Ben Roethlisberger or Philip Rivers? Two guys drafted in the same class, retired by the year apart. And it's like, no one can like agree on that, you know, because it's just, you know, there's so much context driven in football. But um, as far as the 17th game, like I, I think the 17th game is going to contribute to more injuries too. And I think you're going to have far fewer players actually play the 17 games. So it'll be interesting. I don't think there are that many records that will actually go down um, as many as you think uh, because of that 17th game, because I think teams are going to get smarter and play their players fewer than the 17 anyway. We're talking to Eric Eager from PFF. Eric is a longtime analyst there now head of research there as well. And a longtime friend of the show. Another historical question for you, Eric, have you guys ever gone back and graded the great quarterbacks of like the seventies, this, it struck me watching Aaron Rodgers pass this year, like some, just some passing through. That was just so ridiculous. And it's like, there's no way those guys back in the day threw the ball. Like he throws, there's just no way. And, and what's interesting is you guys have your technology. What you do is pretty well suited for making these kinds of apples to apples comparisons. And I'm curious whether y'all must've talked about this or even done it. Like, pull up a bunch of tapes from the seventies and give us grades on Kenny Stabler and Fran Tarkenton and, and Terry Bradshaw. And let's try to get a little more apples to apples just to see how remarkable Rogers is compared to those guys. Or Dan Marino who put up like kind of well, modern day gaudy numbers, that's right. but in so, a very different era as far yeah. as actually throwing the football. Is that's right. It was like, actually you, you could see the evolution because Marino also Dan Fouts probably predates Marino just a little bit as well. And he had the same kind of arm. So anyway, Eric, y'all must've thought about this kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I think we we did like so we've gone back and retrograded 07 and 06. We're sort of trying to keep the continuity, but when we retrograded 06, Peyton Manning was like two standard deviations better than everybody else. And 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 Tom Brady at the time was kind of just, you know, average. And it was kind of remarkable to see, right? Because we've we've grown accustomed to Tom Brady being this great player and, you know, probably one of the best players of all time. And, you know, when we actually like turned it on, turned on the tape, it wasn't quite that way. Or we went back and graded Super Bowl one. We've graded a couple of Super Bowls. Like I know when the Niners and Chiefs played in 19, you know, 2019, we went back and graded their game from 94, which was a game that Montana and, and Steve Young both started. And it was kind of interesting to see where their grades were, or what we thought was a turnover worthy play back then or, or whatever. But you're right. I mean, uh, that is something we we thought about for sure, and and you know it, it's something I think that would would change a lot of our perspectives on certain players, um, and it would it would make us smarter as analysts, I think too, because you know when you look at somebody like uh, Joe Namath, you talk about Aaron Rodgers, and I and I agree with you. I think Aaron Rodgers is one of the most talented. We, we think about him and the way he thinks on the field and stuff like that, but his arm strength, his ability to move, his ability ability to throw with his feet not set. Uh, some of the most talented, uh, you know, displays of quarterbacking I've ever seen. Um, you know, you sort of go back and think like Joe Namath, Fran Tarkenton threw 32 interceptions the final year of his career. This is somebody who <laughs> ended ended the ended his career as one of the, the the most prolific passer in all of football. And you know, if he threw 32, I mean, like they would be he would be on the first bus out of town if he <laughs> that this year. So like you don't you almost have to go in and also re like normalize things, right? Like. And that, and that's one thing we do run into with our grades is like with the league being non-stationary, like all those coefficients change over time. And the question becomes like, okay, what do you do about that? Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Adi, you're, you're muted. One of the activities I do before we prepare for the show is kind of look on, on the online and figure out who's doing what since I'm not on, on, so on top of the football. And I, immediately the first page of like ESPN statistics chart change on say quarterbacks is total yards. It's, it's as if, you know, it's still 1985 or whatever it was. So, and you talk about the PFF grades. Well, I'm not getting that. That's not, you know, that's not, that's not, that's what you, you yes, your private stuff. You sell that to teams, you consult. What does a guy like me want to look at when he wants to decide who's having a good season and not necessarily predictively? I mean, there's part of that, I understand, but I want to know who had a great season that represents, you know, doing the right things on the field. And what's, what should I be looking at? What should I be looking at for quarterbacks? And what should I be looking at for, say, running backs, et cetera? Eric, you could, y'all could sell a new product here. You could sell like a little curated what yeah. does Audie Weiner need to know? You know I know, know. I have to say, you well, know, the, I, the debate was with Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, where the first, you know, the first quarterback on that list is Tom Brady. He's got a thousand more yards than 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 uh, than uh, than Aaron Rodgers. I'm like, uh, is that a lot? Is that usual? Is it like 20 home runs? Um, and then, and then, of course, you might want you brought the conversation I saw on Twitter to uh, to war, and I'm like, well, what? How you? How should I think about that in here? Yeah, I mean, war is is one of these things where we'll simulate a season with and without a player and sort of, and we have, you know, formulas for how the the correlation should go. So you take out a wide receiver, his quarterback gets worse. So like they're there, but just basically trying to simulate a season with and without a player and see what sort of the effect is on the team from a wins perspective. But that's also like extremely, that's still not perfect, right? Because there are aspects of, you know, to your point about volume versus efficiency, like, if you know Aaron Rodgers ha- also has a hundred and uh, carry the two sixty nine more pass attempts 
than than uh, Aaron Rodgers does. So that that thousand yards extra is on a bunch of more attempts, right? And so, like, there there are still questions about like, okay, if we think Brady is the most valuable player in the league, we took him off the team. Well, that replacement player, is he throwing all 682 passes or are they going to be more of a run first team and run 450 passes? Right. Does that increase his war or decrease his war? Like, is that a sin of omission or commit? Like, there's a ton of like questions, whereas in baseball, right? Like the, the question of war is a little bit easier because like you're still going to come up a certain number of times in the batting order. And if I take out Mike Trout from the uh, Angels, that I mean, he's going to hit less because he's going to get less base hits, and so they're going to go around the 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 nine like maybe incrementally less. But it's not going to be this kind of effect, right? Where right. they're throwing right. the ball two hundred fewer times, and so like that's what makes war tough, and that's what makes football analysis tough. Um, to answer your first question, though, I think I mean for everything, it's like look at efficiency. If you if you look at yards per attempt, if you just rank by yards per attempt, that gets you at a decent place. Joe Burrow. 8.9 yards per attempt. He's been the talk of the town here, but then it gets you to like Jimmy Garoppolo, who's 8.5. He's second. So like, okay, what does that mean? Okay. Maybe if you look at something like, you know, net adjusted yards per attempt, which takes into consideration, you know, interceptions and touchdowns and, and things like that, or adjusted net yards per attempt, you know, that'll, that'll help as well. That's where Aaron Rodgers is first, but you still get guys like Jimmy Garoppolo fourth, right? So um, you know, I, that's where I think like, again, you know, to answer Shane's question, like, that's why I'm not necessarily as big on, you know, sort of like the, the, you know, traditional statistics lie the most in football. And I think that this is one classic example of that. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to, I, I mean, I, I guess to reiterate your point about how war is so much more, so much easier in baseball. Cause you, you know, a, a player is kind of lost from the lineup. And there's not much the team can do to kind of adjust or scheme around that. Whereas in football, if you were, but you know, your main quarterback goes down, you're going to completely change your game plan to try and put your replacement quarterback in the best possible position to succeed or your replace whatever replacement player. So it's a, it's a much tougher kind of calculation mm-hmm. or framework to even kind of think about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Eric, maybe building on that, how do you guys, I mean, couldn't you just compute something like, uh, you know, maybe it's additional win probability that the quarterback brings. I mean, I'm, you know, I was sitting here watching. I mean, Adi probably wanted the Jets. We both wanted the same thing. We both wanted the Buccaneers to come back and beat the Jets because we want the Jets to have better draft picks. Yep. But, but regardless, I don't know how many quarterbacks in the league would have done what Tom Brady did this last Sunday, down whatever, four points with a minute 50 to go at his own, like, five-yard line. And so – isn't there a way just to compute, like, let's put another quarterback in the same situations and compute some sort of expected win probability above replacement and can't, you know, or maybe we should weight it more. Like, I don't care how Tom Brady plays or any, or Aaron Rodgers plays the first 55 minutes of the game. How do they play the last five minutes of the game when, you know, the crucial games are on the line? So how do you guys think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, what we do in our war is what we do is we will, um, we will weigh it like we have these specific like coefficients that sort of like talk about the correlations between player and, you know, position and facet. So if you're a running back, receiving is more valuable than rushing, but receiving is maybe less stable than rushing. So we will sort of like shrink the coefficient for receiving and, and keep the one for rushing higher and, and stuff like that. And, 
you know, there, there are aspects to the game that are, that are noisy. And like, that's one of the things when we've looked at wind probability, that's where I think it gets tricky because like, so for example, Aaron Rodgers, you know, when he, like he had the, the two Hail Marys, the one season, the one against Detroit, I remember on Thursday night football specifically, that's like a full win of win probability on one pass. And so the question becomes a, like how repeatable is, well, who deserves the credit on a Hail Mary? Is it a tight end? Is it Richard Rodgers for, you know, for, for lining up under that ball and muscling it away from three guys? Is it Aaron Rodgers for being able to throw the ball 50 yards, which almost any quarterback can do? Um, is it the offensive line for giving him the time? And like the division of credit is a pr- hard problem, but one that can, that one can solve. But then should you even be doing that based upon the fact that that's almost completely unstable from year to year. And we'd like right. for war to be somewhat of a stable statistic. And we've actually found that like, you know, war is a pretty like, you know, stable thing season to season, especially for players who play in the same scheme. So it, it's a hard problem the, the win probability thing is interesting. I think, adding some sort of like it, it's certainly retrospective, right. And, 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 you know, over the course of, of an NFL season, you just don't get the 150 more games to sort of like have the uh, you know, the strikeouts with the bases loaded and two outs in the bottom of the ninth down one to, to counterbalance the home run you hit there. Um, you know, we're in football, it's very much like a season's worth of very high leverage plays and the ones where you, you happen to sort of the, the coin flips heads on those, you end up being a five win player when they, when they don't, you end up a minus one win player. It, it like we, we would like rather war be more reflective of how, how sort of valuable the players should expect to be as well. Mm-hmm. Eric, before we let you go, I want to ask one other general category of questions. And that is, can, can you update us on the Bengals? And I, I'm, I'm finding myself really pulling for them kind of despite a history of not really respecting the franchise. And I don't know where all that is, partly because there's so much fun to watch now. I mean, Chase is ridiculous. Burrow, ever since he beat Texas in his, you know, sixth senior year at LSU, I've been a fan of the guy, despite the fact that he beat Texas. I, I kind of believe in him. But but Cincinnati's not a, a club that's inspired a lot of confidence over the years, despite making a couple of Super Bowls. You know, for a long time, their owner didn't even try to win. He was just kind of enjoying the way revenue was shared. What should we know about Cincinnati? How good should we feel about ourselves when we pull for Cincinnati? Well, and, and I'm somebody who goes to a lot of games. I went to the game last week because I'm, I'm a Chiefs fan, and I wanted to see the, the Chiefs play live uh, for the first time since we were all at the Super Bowl in Miami la- a couple of years ago. I went uh, with with your uh, with with uh, Wharton Moneyball's own Zap Drapkin to right, the right. Ravens game because he was my intern, and then he was the he was the Ravens intern, and so we went to that game. I've seen a lot of Bengals football this year. I I think the Bengals are an example of what's possible in the NFL which is if you don't have to be perfect to be competitive in the NFL. Um, and in fact, embracing, embrace, uh, getting rid of mediocrity is actually the way. Um, so, you know, the Bengals, as you guys know, from 2000, I believe Marlon Marvin Lewis became the coach early 2000s uh, until 2018. Um, you know, he was the coach there. They won a few division titles. They never won a playoff game. Um, and near the end there, it was always this this quest to stay relevant, a quest to get people into Paul Brown Stadium and not embarrass yourself. And ultimately, that led to where it, it would, would have led had they decided to start over. And given the way the, the collective bargaining agreement is, given the way that the league wants you know teams to reload, 
you know, the Bengals got a, a first first overall pick in 2019, uh, the first pick in the second round in 2019 or 2020. I'm sorry, 2020, and and the you know high pick in 2020 as well in the second round. Then they get the fifth overall pick last year for Jamar for Jamar Chase. Now you get Burrow on a rookie deal. You get T. Higgins on a rookie deal, a 1,000-yard receiver, and then you get Jamar Chase, who just broke the rookie receiving record this year. Now you have all of those players on cost-control contracts for the next two and a half years. And so even a team as cheap as Cincinnati or, or reportedly as cheap as Cincinnati now have a humongous surplus of value that they can use on building a roster. And we've seen it, as we talked about at the beginning of this, this segment, we have teams, you know, gearing up to beat the chiefs and bills you have you have derrick henry getting hurt because running backs get hurt you have you have all these teams weakened in the afc and now you see the cincinnati Bengals pop up with their group of young and i think most importantly cheap talent like they can compete and it wasn't that long ago that everybody here in this town was saying no we got to keep marvin lewis we got to keep andy dalton because that makes us respectable so that the the i i think that there are great lesson for the rest of the league who is trying to decide between should we rip the Band-Aid off and start over or should we try to maintain respectability? The path from ripping the Band-Aid off to being good is not that long. And then secondly, um, you know, they are a team that doesn't have a lot of scouts. They are a team that doesn't put a lot of effort into much of anything. Right. In some ways. <laughs> right. um, but they, they hired a gentleman named Sam Francis, who I know Michael Lopez has highlighted on his Twitter. I've met yeah. him before. Very smart guy. And a guy like Sam Francis at the end of a game like Chiefs Bengals can make Zach Taylor look like a better coach than Andy Reid. And Andy Reid is in the Hall of Fame when he retires. But being able to sort of even just pick up dollar bills off the ground in terms of in-game decision making is what the Bengals have started to do. And it's okay. paid dividends for them. Okay. Uh, that, that's great. Um, and that's always a question we're interested in learning which organizations have invested more on the analytics side of things. It sounds like that's on the decision-making game day, decision-making strategy, as opposed to personnel, the Bengals famous for not investing a lot on the scouting side. So it'd be a little surprising if that analytics on the personnel side. One other factor that, I, that seems to be in there by luck or not is the, the pieces they've acquired through the draft. I mean, teams, some teams have philosophies on what sides of the ball or what kinds of positions to draft high and some don't. And I'm not sure if the Bengals had that philosophy, but they have taken, they've spent some capital all on the offensive side of the ball and at some exciting positions like wideouts. Is that, and they hit, and they hit on these things. And I don't know if we want to give them credit for a second round hit on T Higgins or not. Jamar Chase, people have drafted receivers at that position before and they didn't pan out. And so some of it is chance, but how much of it is that's where teams should be spending their, their high draft capital at these high value positions. And you almost have to do that philosophically. Yeah, and you have to know the the variance and the bias trade off, right? Like the 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 Detroit Lions drafted Penay Sewell, who was the who was the offensive tackle that the Bengals were considering instead of Burrow or instead of uh, Chase. And the the thing was, oh, you know, Joe Burrow got injured last year because they had a terrible O line. We got to keep that from happening, right? And Jamar Chase, and we, we do this with you know War. We you know they were similarly Ward, but wide receiver War is more it has a wider distribution than tackle right. war. Right. And so the idea is being, okay, you're the Detroit lions and you're at least a year or two from even getting your franchise quarterback, let alone being good. So why don't you get a building block there? Who's a good football player that you can sort of build around You're you're never, 
if he if he gives you a two sigma season, you're not going to be able to capitalize it on it anyway. So you know, get a get a player in there that's a solid player. The Bengals though had just you know Zach Taylor. This is year three, and he you know the way that he coached in years one and two, partially responsible for the very fact that you're picking number one and number five. <laughs> and so the Jamar Chase thing made sense in the sense of. Not only were you in a position having Burrow to capitalize on variance, you needed it, right? Yeah. And, and that's how, you know, the wide receiver position is how you get, right? That's how we, when Randy Moss was drafted by the Vikings, the Vikings were nine and seven, three consecutive years, right? Or four consecutive years, something like that. And then they go 15 and one, like Dennis Green needed Randy Moss to keep his job. Yeah. And, and I think like, you know, sort of understanding the, the bias variance trade-off and sort of seeing like in some cases you need you need to have you might be you might be selecting for a lower mean player, but if you get a higher sigma player, then it can help you. And if and if if your pick fails, you're you're gone anyway, right? Like the, looking at the downside, everybody looks at the downside of fourth down decisions and two-point conversion decisions and everything without looking at what the upside could provide them. And I think that in this case, the Bengals, whether by hook or by crook, ended up with the, the right player for the right time for them and, and they're reaping the benefits of it. That, that's great. And it, I, it also just raises this general question about, you know, the portfolio approach to the draft and how, how many teams are strategic and thoughtful about that. You, any team needs some mix of these, right? The high beta players and the lower, the high beta picks and the low beta picks. And um, it's an interesting one more interesting challenge in the NFL draft. All right, Eric, we've got to let you go. We've kept you longer than we expected to. Always fun to talk with you for the whole team here. Appreciate you making time for us. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Always a pleasure. Uh, you guys are the best. Eric Eager, PFF, longtime friend of the show. He heads the research group there. First analytics guy in there. Been making a big difference there for a number of years now. That has been another two hours of sports analysts, another Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. For the whole team, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, this has been Cade Massey. For Matty Dats, boss man, thanks for all the work there, Matt. For Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man, appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.